Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and today is day three of our Back to School podcast. Joining me are... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Karen Koch tusman Senior Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. It's the 30th edition of Back to School, BioCentury's signature annual issue, and this year we're talking about talent. On yesterday's pod, we talked about the C-suite, diversity, and inclusion, and the growing prominence of women CEOs. Today, we continue the theme of leadership and look to rising leaders, the leaders who want management to lift the curtain and open the door. We check in on VCs. They are the ones staffing these new biotechs out there, and the talent crunch has meant that experienced boards and chairs, and money, of course, are just as important as ever for first-time CEOs. But the competition for experienced executives has seen compensation demands soar. I'm sure you're well aware of this. Stakeholders are noting that the disparity between the U.S. and Europe on CEO pay has narrowed. Let me bring in Simone. Simone, rising leaders. Jeff, thank you for that. I think it's very clear. When we talk about rising leaders, we're talking about people who, I don't know, maybe they're VP level or above. These are people, when we go out and do a survey, they check the box that they want the C-suite to be their next position. And one of the real themes that continues from what we talked about yesterday, when we talked about the survey of the C-suite, is, you know, it really is time to disrupt the networks and the kind of experience that's going to be required to join the C-suite. That is a common theme that's coming out. This generation, they are actually thirsty to learn, right? They want to get advice and mentoring from today's executives. They're not sort of saying, get out the way, shove, <laughs> shove your side. They know they don't have the experience, but they're saying, give me a chance, just mentor, mentor me. That's what I want. I need sponsorship and mentorship, and I need connections because I can't break through because what's going on is it's just been a sort of closed circle of requiring experience, management experience. But how do you get that first management experience? That is a pretty high level view. We have Rachel Myers from Phase Medicines, who just sort of says, we can't wait for this. She says, if we wait for people to check all the boxes, we're waiting too long. We need to take chances. And that is a theme that you're going to hear every single day that runs through all of the different sectors' responses. People want to, you know, really reach leadership and, and have their say. So I'm going to throw to Karen now. We asked a couple of open-ended questions. One is, what are your biggest barriers to attaining career goals? And the other is, what do you see as the key attractions of working in senior leadership? Why do you even want to do this? So Karen, break those down for us. Sure. Well, people rated getting leadership opportunities and establishing the right connections as the biggest barriers, 60% of folks mark those respectively, there was less feeling that there wasn't enough mentoring or training, but that was still a factor. And people did say, about a fifth of people said that it's tougher if you're female or tougher if you're a racial or ethnic minority. And 
we had representation from those groups as well. As far as the reasons of why trying to get into senior leadership, there were some really interesting fill-in responses, and we kind of categorized them by by their take-home messages. But the the biggest thing that we're seeing is people want agency to shape the strategy of a company, to shape the team and culture, to execute on the science to its highest potential. And it's not that they don't want advice around this. They absolutely do. But having a voice, having agency, the, the ability to mold and shape and grow and learn, this is really what people are seeking when they're seeking higher level positions. Yes, I thought was interesting. A lot came through in interviews. People, if they're not getting mentoring internally, they go to external organizations that might be industry veterans you know, CEOs, they've been successful, and they're now going on boards. And a lot of those are getting very involved in mentoring next generation and the one after that. And that's sort of a theme that continues to resonate. And one of the other things that they say is they sort of want exposure to how this is when I say lift the curtain, they sort of want exposure to the kinds of decisions that the management, the CEOs are making every day and what goes into those decisions. They sort of want to be allowed in the room where it happens. And, you know, sometimes they're like, I want to know, did they make the same decision I would have made? You know, a lot of them are saying like, hey, listen, they're not even understanding there's a whole digital angle to this or something like that. So I think that they do bring new skills. They want to learn and they want to be able to use their new skills to make understanding how decisions are made. Definitely. So it's, it is interesting because we've got perspectives both from people who are, say, climbing the ranks within existing more established organizations. And there it's about getting into those rooms where the strategic decision-making is made and, and hearing those perspectives. And it's also about will people, when they go to seek their next opportunity, people recognizing that while they didn't helm the organization at the time of you know such and such big decision, they were part of the strategic discussions and that was part of their learning people recognizing that as part of their experience is something that needs to happen. But also, uh, we spoke to people who are maybe catapulted into senior roles through, say, spinning out a company earlier in their career. And they too are really seeking mentorship from experienced people who have done it before. So we've got that startup next rising leader perspective as well. All right, let's turn to the VCs who are greasing the wheels of these early stage companies that we care so much about. Stephen, what did you hear? What resonated with you the most in terms of what VCs were saying about the state of talent today in the biopharma industry? Thanks, Jeff. Well, what what I think is really interesting is how well the VC perspective jives with what we saw in the survey just around mentorship and sort of some of the needs there. So, you know, if you think historically, VCs would probably have a bias towards wanting to hire serial or repeat entrepreneurs, people they've worked with before, people they know, you know, know what they're doing or CEOs that have made the money before, because there is obviously a good degree of comfort that comes with that. But they also, my interviews sort of recognize the fact that to grow the pipeline of talent, you do have to give rising leaders an opportunity as well, people that don't have that. And that was one thing that also clearly came out is that taking over a C-suite role, especially a CEO role, 
is very much an experiential sort of thing. There isn't an MBA or another sort of handbook that that you can just give someone and say, well, here, learn to be a CEO. So what came with that is, is this idea that when they do have to bring on sort of a first-time CEO, whether that's someone who was an academic founder or someone that they are bringing into the organization new, what really came through was how important the board really is these days. And in particular, they were talking, several of them emphasized this idea of, of the executive chair and having someone there that is not just there to come in once a quarter and get an update on the company, but to really have a share in, in, in the management of the company and provide mentorship for these first-time CEOs. And so that collates really well with what a lot of these firms are doing now around venture partners, operating partners, entrepreneurs and residents, they all have different names, but really bringing in people that have, have that operational experience, have done it before, but rather than recycling them into just one new company, they're able to sort of leverage that experience and apply it across several of their portfolio companies to really try and maximize their ability to advise these first-time CEOs. So, Stephen, you know, one thing that comes up over and over is the question of salaries. So you've got people who want to get into the C-suite and, and get the top job, and they don't have that much experience. You've also got raising salaries across the board. So I know you looked into this. Break that down for us. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, th there are obviously several caveats that come here. I mean, when I was talking with folks, you know, one of the, well, the first thing that came up was clearly the fact that with the crunch and with the explosion of new companies, really, it's just been harder and harder to attract that high level talent. And with that has come a soaring sort of compensation package or, or demands for compensation. So I did get some some numbers from folks. And so right now, for a US CEO, for a private biopharma company, say who's already raised a pretty decent financing round and met some of their milestones. Most of the folks I spoke to said that it's not uncommon to be about 400,000, 450,000 a year in cash compensation. But one part that I thought was quite interesting was uh, in talking to other folks that have experience both in the US and in Europe, and they were noting how in Europe, it's not that far off anymore. They were saying it's about 350,000 US, maybe 400,000. So I think there used to be this perception that you could get similar levels of talent or experience for a much cheaper price in Europe, but it seems like that's not really the case anymore. And a lot of the explanation for that was the fact that we have a lot more US investors that are participating in Europe, and also just the size of the funds that VCs are raising in Europe now really rivals a lot of the, you know, the US counterparts. And so they're all kind of vying for the same level of international talent. And so with that, you have to have fairly similar compensation packages. But there was, I will say, though, there was a bit of complaining, though. I mean, plenty of people were saying that while the average has gone up and they were saying in some instances, especially if a company has progressed to like a Series B, they can understand why those compensations might seem reasonable. But there was plenty of people complaining that they had seen people making some fairly uh, outlandish requests for compensation, 600, 700,000. And sometimes it was coming from folks coming out of pharma, where they were basically saying, you know, these people are sitting in jobs where they're paid quite well, they have lots of benefit packages, and a lot of them just want to be able to retain that as they make a move across to a CEO position in small biotech. And uh, they said sometimes there was quite a bit of wrangling on trying to uh, trying to make them understand that you need to be a little more mindful of how you spend your cash when you're in a small biotech as compared to a pharma organization. Yeah, a couple of other things have come up on the compensation front. At bioequity in May, 
on the talent panel, one thing came up, which is CMOs, chief medical officers, are traditionally very difficult to find. And it emerged that, you know, CMOs would walk in and they would want very high compensation packages that might be higher than the CEO. And so some VCs are saying, deal with it. So what? There's no rule, no golden rule that the CEO has to earn the most. And if that's what you need, you know, maybe CMOs are rarer than CEOs. And so that's one kind of mental adjustment people have to make. Another thing that came up, I don't know if you heard this from other people, were talking with John Maragonor is one person who feels this, that the not the compensation so much as the bonus structures have gotten completely, he felt that bonus structures needed reassessing. Not really so much the structures, but he says, you know, the bonus is supposed to be something that changes with how well the company does. And it's become an expectation that you'll get not only 100% of your bonus, you know, usually bonus is a target bonus, but that you'll skew above that. And then he'd have years where he was telling the team, hey, listen, guys, you did not do a good job. <laughs> the mm. company did not do a good job. You should not be getting 100% of your bonus. And I think it is maybe some companies are more disciplined than others. But I think there's also a feel that within the compensation package, there needs to be a reassessment of the base salary, the bonus, how much is really discretionary, what really counts as, you know, meeting goals, how much is yours and the company's. And I do expect to see that conversation continue to evolve, you know, yeah. in the next few years. I, I think that's right. And I think the, the around the bonus structures, uh, I mean, I'd be interested to follow up with other people on this as to whether that is more of a public company sort of phenomenon, uh, as opposed to something that you're seeing on the private side, since, you know, the, the public companies where you have a lot more structured payouts for for the bonuses. But the other thing that came up in the conversation was just obviously there's the cash compensation side, but then there's also the equity portion that, that goes out. And that, I guess, was one thing that was maybe a little surprising me just because I thought that you would have seen an increase in both. But the feedback that I got was at least that on the equity side, well, there's maybe been a bit of a creep in terms of people asking for a little bit more equity than what you might have expected, say, five years ago. That at least portion of the equation has largely stayed the same. So your expectations for an incoming founding CEO, you know, what equity they would expect is still roughly similar. But it's it's really on the cash compensation side that that's seen a marked change. And I think that's particularly noteworthy now in a situation where a lot of companies are looking at ways to how they extend their cash runway. And, you know, talking to some of these folks, they were just saying, this is just something that CEOs need to be mindful of, especially, you know, when they're working with their boards and with their investors, do they need to rethink what their cash compensation is or what the C-suite's cash compensation is just in light of what they need to do in terms of, you know, extending the company's uh, cash runways? All right. Thanks, folks. Of course, you can read all of this on biocentury.com. This year's Back to School draws on our big, big talent survey, which we sent around in the spring. It drew more than 600 responses from people all across industry and from people looking to break into biotech. Back to School also draws on the research talents of BioCentury Research Director Meredith Durkin-Wolf. On our next Back to School podcast, we'll do a deep dive into regulatory with our Washington editor, Steve Usden, and we'll take a look at job seekers. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. 
Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.